0: Welcome to the Medical Affairs Professional Society's Perspective Series, Conversations with MAPS President of the Americas Region. Uh, this is Dr. John Preisick. This is an interview series with thought leaders that impact all aspects of medical affairs. Unfortunately, this is the inaugural podcast for the series. Uh, the views expressed in this recording are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect on the opinions of the companies in which they are affiliated. In this section, we will discuss some foundational aspects of the transition that we're seeing taking place in the orthopedic space in regards to COVID. So let's get started. As I said, this is the first installment of what is going to be a two-part podcast, and it's an interview with Patrick Vagan on his recent OrthoWorld article entitled How COVID-19 Disruption accelerates orthopedic opportunities in ambulatory surgery. First, we'll start out with some quick introductions. Patrick, it's great to have you. Patrick, would you provide our audience with just a very brief uh, introduction?
1: Sure, thank you very much, Dr. Prysik. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your membership today and to share the perspectives of um, frontline providers and to some degree, vendors in the space. I have, <clears throat> excuse me, worked in healthcare for more than 20 years, most of that in orthopedics, spine and neurosciences, conducting strategic assessments, planning, development and implementation with hospitals, health systems and physician practices across the country and have had the opportunity to work in most parts of the country. <clears throat> I currently am employed as the Director of Orthopedic Consulting with Vizient, a large group purchasing organization that has multiple subsidiaries that span data collection and analysis, as I said, group purchasing and strategy and assessment. Appreciate the opportunity again. Thank you.
0: No, absolutely. Uh, this is John Preisick. I am the president of the Americas Region for Medical Affairs Professional Society. We are an organization of some 3,700-plus medical affairs professionals from all aspects of the career spectrum. Uh, and we represent over 200 companies. Uh, My day job is that I work for Johnson & Johnson, specifically Depew Synthes, which is the orthopedic company of Johnson & Johnson. And there I serve as the integrated leader of preclinical research, clinical research, and medical affairs for Depew Synthes spine. So Patrick, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. I'm going to start out with the very first question, This is why is the topic of COVID-19 disruption, moving orthopedic opportunities for ambulatory surgery, important to our MAPS membership?
1: Well, the, it's important to all of healthcare care in terms of the impact of COVID. As we have seen, there has been a substantial and long-lasting uh, impact of COVID-19. Uh, first off, relative to orthopedics, really shut down um, all elective procedures in virtually all hospitals across the country due to concerns about the spread of COVID. Um, This has caused tremendous uh, operational, financial, um, and medical staff strain across the country. And also it has uh, impacted uh, companies that sell into this particular market. For many hospitals and health systems, orthopedics and spine represents a substantial portion of their revenues and as I mentioned a moment ago, elective procedures represent a majority of their surgical procedures and most profitable. So relative to hospitals, health systems, and physician practices and those companies, particularly orthopedic and spine vendors, this represents both an economic uh, loss as well as a, a substantial challenge in terms of how to recover from it Uh, Presumably, this would apply across much of the MAPS membership (coughs) relative to other companies that um, that have lost opportunity because their services or products are not being purchased by hospitals and health systems.
0: No, thank you very much, Patrick. I think our MAPS membership is predominantly pharmaceuticals, but we also have life science, we have diagnostic devices, we have implantable devices representing two major sectors of medtech. Uh, as also uh, we're seeing that those lines are starting to blur where pharmaceutical companies are looking at combination products. So there's been quite a bit of interest recently in the transition of uh, products, particularly as they can actually so apply to both the pharmaceutical as well as the medtech. So I think this topic, although it's specific for orthopedics, is particularly cogent at this time. So let's, let's dig into it a little bit. You've written a column for OrthoWorld. It's a vendor manufacturer facing publication with an audience of over a thousand industry experts. How did you come about to write this column?
1: I've had a relationship with OrthoWorld for probably about 10 years, uh, periodically writing columns around orthopedics and spine. And then I was approached two years ago by their chief content officer about the opportunity to bring more of a provider perspective to the publication. And historically, um, articles and content for OrthoWorld have really centered around vendors and manufacturers Uh, both from a new product standpoint, from a strategic standpoint, from a um, capital and financing standpoint. And what was missing, or at least what we had speculated at the time was missing, was a provider perspective where vendors might better understand how their products are used beyond just the sale in the hospital. So, for example... a joint replacement vendor might sell products to the hospital for a knee replacement. Um, Oftentimes that vendor is supporting the physician in the operating room, supporting the physician in the operating room with technical expertise, access to various sizes of products and so on, but they really oftentimes don't have much of a view beyond uh, the operating room and providing the invoice to the hospital and being paid. So um, one of the, one of the uh, approaches and um, perspectives that I wanted to share with vendors and manufacturers is, for example, how do you navigate the value analysis process? For those folks in MAPS that aren't familiar with that, that's really a product evaluation process where combination of physicians, hospital executives, purchasing and perhaps finance people will review new products to ensure that they meet safety and clinical needs and um, either accept or reject them for use in the organization. Oftentimes vendors don't have much view to this. They might be asked for data or for capabilities for their products, but they don't have much of a view to what happens.
0: And so I'm thinking
1: back to a column that I wrote in 2019 about how small companies can navigate the value analysis process. And that provided some insights to them on whom they might contact, how they might strategically approach that process. So it's really about bringing provider level insights into the organizations. Uh, the vendor and the manufacturer organizations. Um, in addition to that, Dr. Prasik, one of the other phenomena that I have seen is that whereas maybe 15, 20 years ago, vendors were selling to the individual physician, perhaps somebody in supply chain or purchasing, now oftentimes those particular uh, processes and approvals are being done on a Uh, integrated delivery network or multiple hospital basis, maybe regionally, maybe even nationally, where there is many more individuals that evaluate the products and they have much better access to data in terms of that evaluation process. So my contention has been through a series of articles that I've written is that from the vendor and manufacturer standpoint, this also requires some additional supplemental skills that sometimes direct Sales representatives don't have, and that would be the ability to navigate these other parts of the organization. Hope that's helpful.
0: No, it's it's absolutely helpful. And framing it up uh, so that our maps colleagues from the pharmaceutical side understand what is a very common process on the medtech side is that the value analysis committees really had their foundations within the pharmacy and therapeutics committees. So the P and T committees and the value analysis committees are analogous. One for the pharma world and the other for the medtech world. So let's transition a little bit to ambulatory services. Can you give us a brief history of ambulatory services in orthopedics and spying?
1: Certainly. So when we talk about ambulatory services, we're talking about everything that happens outside the hospital walls. Now, increasingly, they can actually, or this can actually occur within the hospital walls as well. So, when I think about the places of service and and those options for ambulatory services, they might include what we call HOP D or hospital outpatient department, perhaps something called same day surgery. Um, And those might be hospital based, they're not necessarily based out in the community. In terms of freestanding, facilities or operations. They would include the outpatient sites, whether it's rehabilitation, whether it's the surgeon's clinic. Uh, it could include urgent care. It could include ambu- excuse me, ancillary services, diagnostics, interventional procedure rooms. From the standpoint of the ambulatory surgery centers or ASCs, the common shorthand, they would be comprised of really driven by um, an ownership model, whether they're exclusively physician owned, whether they are jointly owned and managed by a ambulatory surgery center. Ownership model, uh, where they might co-venture with physicians, they could be exclusively hospital owned or they could be a hospital physician jointly owned and operated ambulatory surgery center. So the history of these is perhaps 20, 25 years ago, physicians and surgeons understood that there were opportunities to to deliver some of their services on an outpatient basis. Those would include minor orthopedic procedures, perhaps sports medicine, um, treating fractures, and so on. And initially, uh, again going back many years, physicians did not have the capital oftentimes to uh, invest and build these services, whether it was facilities, equipment, and so on. And oftentimes what occurred was that they would approach hospitals as potential partners. Um, oftentimes at that, at that particular point in time, hospitals would, um, would be, believing that, that the, these procedures would not leave the hospital, oftentimes their response was that they would not support the development of those and not invest in that. So over time, physicians found capital elsewhere, started to develop outpatient ambulatory, ambulatory surgery centers, and they flourished. And they, um, in some cases, started taking cases from the hospital to the ambulatory setting. Um, hospitals started to see this occurring and believed that there, was, that there was a need for them to be involved in this particular marketplace, and. Delivery of services on an outpatient basis and reapproached oftentimes physicians. Um, at that point, oftentimes the physicians were adequately capitalized, didn't need the support from the hospital, and they, as, as direct owners, were be- benefiting financially and greater control over their services. So now hospitals find themselves in the position that either they must develop these services themselves in collaboration with their physicians or with new medical staff. So the challenge at this point um, across this whole um, continuum of places of service is who owns and manages the services. So um, what we find is a high level of interest for hospitals to strategically understand what their opportunities are to identify prospective partners and to seek
0: uh, the development of the services that, thank, you uh, well, thank you very much that 's a comprehensive history, and you can see how it has evolved over time, so there 's a fair amount of provenance there. Let me pick up on a theme that you just introduced at the very end, and that is, could you help characterize for our listeners who are the main strategic stakeholders in ambulatory services, Patrick certainly.
1: The, the main strategic stakeholders would be, for orthopedics and spine, are going to be orthopedic surgeons, perhaps neurosurgeons, orthopedic spine surgeons. Um, They're going to be hospitals, health systems, and then um, development companies or management development companies that might partner with hospitals or physicians in the development of ambulatory services. Um, they, the, the developmental companies have um, acquired and are able to bring extensive expertise in the financing, operations, promotion, um, supply chain to the industry. And many physicians have found them to be um, the, uh, a very comprehensive and capable partner. So again, uh, hospitals, health systems, surgeons, and management companies.
0: Now, thank you so much. As we look at the location, you've already touched briefly on the ambulatory places of service, whether that be a full-blown ASC, Ambulatory Surgery Center, or a HOPD, a hospital outpatient department, or same-day surgery. Um, I'd like to transition now to really sort of setting the stage before the pandemic and that is what was happening in this sector immediately before COVID-19.
1: Certainly, well the the growth of ambulance the growth and volume of ambulatory services uh, being delivered had steadily grown over many years um, to the point that uh, joint replacement was happening uh, pretty much on a regular basis oftentimes procedures, simple spine procedures, uh, such as kyphoplasty or um, fracture care, uh, simple lumbar fusions, uh, maybe other um, less invasive procedures, again, had grown steadily, but not at a rapid pace, and then that was changed um, substantially when COVID hit.
0: Thank you so much. With regards to the two or three critical COVID-19 impacts on ambulatory care, can you help frame up for our listeners what have been really the things that have uh, affected ambulatory care? Obviously, to begin with, surgeries weren't being done. There was a moratorium and uh, prevention and suspension of elective surgery. But as that has start to unfold, help now characterize what you were learning uh, for this sector of the market as cases started to return. Correct,
1: correct. So um, probably you you cited probably the number one um, factor and that is that elective cases were essentially um, brought to a standstill by COVID that hospitals did not want to take the risk of um, exposing patients to COVID both as well as their staff. So the discontinuation of the elective procedures, which in orthopedics and spine represents a vast majority of the procedures that were done on an inpatient basis. So those procedures not being able to be done on an inpatient basis conceivably provided an opportunity for them to be done on an ambulatory basis. Um, The other uh, factors that might be included here would be patient fears. So oftentimes patients uh, have expressed fears about going on the Campus of a hospital for fear of being infected. Um, the other, um, fa- another factor would be that uh, if patients still wanted, for example, a hip replacement or a joint replacement, they might be looking at months of waiting for the hospital to open and remobilize their surgical services versus being done on an ambulatory basis. So the, really, the combination of the three the discontinuation of elective procedures for the inpatient basis, patient fears of going on campus, and then the availability of these procedures that historically had been done on an inpatient basis conceivably could now be done safely for a select group of patients. I would add, Dr. Prasic, that for patients to be qualified for their procedure to be done on an ambulatory basis, they were likely going to face more scrutiny in terms of uh, evaluation of comorbidities, patient risk factors. Um, So not every patient that was appropriate for an inpatient joint replacement, for example, would necessarily be appropriate and clinically safe to be done on an ambulatory basis. Is that helpful?
0: Very helpful. So there's going to be a subset that will be able to migrate to the ambulatory setting and potentially that could free up uh, operating room throughput uh, back at the main hospital. That's very helpful. As we're winding down this first podcast, I'm gonna to come to the final question, and that is, what are the strategic and tactical considerations for this topic of COVID-19 disruption accelerating the orthopedic opportunities for ambulatory surgery? Sure,
1: sure. Good question. Um, I think the top strategic and tactical considerations would apply to both the inpatient setting and the outpatient setting. So, for example, um, one of the things that, that I often recommend hospitals and health systems and physician practices is to really have an accurate and thorough assessment, both of the opportunity, which, inc- which might include things such as demand in the marketplace for the procedures they're contemplating uh, provided on ambulatory basis, um, insurance, access, and so on, as well as understanding what assets they have. Do they have ambulatory space currently? How is it being used? Is it appropriately licensed? Is it appropriately staffed? And I think from a, from a, from a standpoint of um, evaluation and understanding assets, It's a rather simple focus, it's it's both simple and complex. And it's really not for, for hospitals and health systems and for physician practice, it's not necessarily a shift away from inpatient, but an addition of system structure and resources to include ambulatory services. My own perspective over the years is that oftentimes hospitals and health systems, because there are so many problems um, and challenges day in and day out, that oftentimes they are preoccupied with, with um, simple financial survival in their particular marketplace that oftentimes they're not able to marshal the focus to really apply resource, resources in an in intentional and deliberate fashion and go through the process of assessment. Again, understanding the opportunity, understanding the assets, and understanding the relationships with their surgeons. So I would say that probably on a uh, an overarching basis that um, probably a primary recommendation that I would make to hospitals, health systems, and to vendors for that, for, for, for that matter is to really understand what is the opportunity for each of them respectively. In some cases, they're gonna be common themes like products, services, patient access. In other ones, they're gonna be specifically let's say, for example, on vendors. I think that oftentimes, when particularly when surgeons are uh, comprise ownership for an ambulatory surgery center, they become less brand sensitive because the, they're more at risk for the financing and the, and the financial performance. So again, I would circle back to it's really about strategic assessment, understanding current
0: position and opportunity. Well, thank you very much, Patrick. That has been most comprehensive foundational work uh, to help our listeners understand this migration of orthopedic services to an ambulatory environment. Well, this is going to wrap up our first podcast, uh, first segment, I should say, of a two-part podcast on this topic. My guest has been Patrick Vega, uh, Senior Director at Visient Consulting, and he has been talking to us about his recent OrthoWorld article entitled How COVID-19 Disruption Accelerates Orthopedic Opportunities in Ambulatory Surgery. We will make a link available to this publication on both of these podcasts. But until next time, thank you so much, Patrick. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to this very first of Perspectives, Conversations with MAPS President of the Americas Region. And we look forward to listening to you soon. Thank you.